he wanted to get me on tape saying that transplant doctors are trying to kill their patients. And that's what I said. And I would like to take that back. <laughs> Consider that taken back. Thank we will you. not put that in. Except for the cold open where we'll... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fine. Is this like drafting the mascot? Is it, did you just like decide to do it because you thought it would be fun to look at a, a gritty uh, throwing pies? <laughs> Freely Filtered, the twice-a-month podcast that summarizes and pontificates on recent FJC journal articles. FJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social science to discuss the research and developments that are driving This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor. This podcast may discuss off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight, we have the full filtrate. And I also want to uh, speak on behalf of my former co-fellow, Jenny Lin, one of the filtrates who is not with us tonight. Don't! Josh, introduce yourself. Sure, this is Josh Waitsman. I'm a nephrology fellow at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Twitter handle is jwaits. Swap. Hey, I'm Swapnil Hiramad. I'm a nephrologist and uh, hypertensionologist at uh, the University of Ottawa. I tweet at H Swapnil. I don't have any conflicts apart from being on the Hypertension Canada guidelines. Jordi? Um, I'm Jordi Cohen. I tweet at Jordi underscore BC. I don't have any conflicts of interest. I sit on the American Medical Association validated device listing for hypertension, and I'm part of the KDOKI group that's going to be commenting on the KDGO guidelines, but I will try to just purely reflect my own opinions tonight and not the opinions of anyone in that group. Who would probably be horrified. <laughs> Sophia? Hi, I'm Sophia Ambruso. I am a clinical nephrologist and assistant professor at the University of Colorado in Denver, VA. I tweet at Sophia Kidney. I have no conflicts of interest. I am not on any hypertensive boards, but I am a veteran specialist because that's all I care for. And we essentially have a diabetes hypertension clinic. So that's all I do. Nayan? My name is Nayan Aurora. I am a nephrologist at the University of Washington in Seattle. I tweet at Captain Chloride, and I'm relatively unimportant, sit on no boards, and I have no conflicts of interest. I, too, have no conflicts of interest for this. So, tonight we wanted to do something special. The NEFJC that we're covering right now is the KDGO Blood Pressure Guidelines for 2021. This is an update from their 2012 guidelines. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, quite a delay. Yeah, but it turns out a delay, it's, it, this is better than JNC 8, I think, or late. or JNC late, yeah. And, and I think this is something that KDGO is very conscious of, and they were and they mentioned it a lot when they do the diabetes guidelines, and they mentioned it again here. They've got, moved to this new platform, the Magic Cap platform, to allow them to do quick... Magic uh, app, not cap. It's an app. Ma- it's, it, I thought this was like the sorting hat. It's like no, the sorting no. hat? No, it's a magic app, not a magic cap. Exactly. My my mistake. Okay. Magic app that allow that they say is gonna allow them to do more frequent updates. We will see if that ends up being true. And so when we do these guideline episodes, it just doesn't fit 
the standard NEFJC podcast algorithm. We don't have a methods and results and then discussion that we can go through. And so we wanted to mix it up. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do a draft. And so this is going to be like a fantasy football draft or the NFL draft. And each one of us is going to, we're going to look at the draft board, which is the, what did I say? There's 12 guidelines. It's 12. Correct. It's going to be 12 recommendations and we're going to draft them. And each person is going to try to pick the most important and impactful guideline. And we'll work from the top to the bottom. And and my team has already told me that they don't understand this at all. And I, this is exactly what Matt and I ran into when we tried to do Neff Madness. And we said, yeah, it's just like the NC2A basketball tournament, but for, for nephrology. And people were like, yeah, that's not a good analogy. I have no idea what the NC2A basketball tournament is. What's the Dungeons and Dragons analogy? For it, we're, remember, we're at a five percent Dungeons and Dragons rate from the Twitter poll, which so is, we are not which is anywhere li- close. Hundred percent of our listeners. I'm gonna go get my D120. That's gonna solve any problems that we have when we don't actually know the correct answer to one of our questions. One sec. For the record, the other four of us have no idea what the two of them are talking. About. <laughs> I'll just say I like different sports, so I'm like a soccer gal. I'm super cool, by the way. I'm so cool. So you're saying whoever... You guys see that guy who died on the field? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, from Denmark. Soccer player? Yeah, on the field. But then they resuscitated him, and he he is alive and responsive in the hospital. He is now a survivor of sudden cardiac death, which always seemed like a sentence that shouldn't be able to be uttered. Okay, I figured that for a group of people that were picked last regularly for kickball, you guys will be intimately familiar <laughs> with uh, with a draft, right? You have two captains and they pick up, they choose up the teams. That's what we're going to be doing. We got six captains and we're going to be choosing up the teams. And before this podcast started, we determined our order and we have Sophia leading off with the first draft pick. So drum roll, please. Sophia, what is your top draft choice? Okay, I already know that's not going to be the most popular. But that being said, my draft choice, so this has always been me. I like to pick the underdog. That probably goes with drafting. And it's only the underdog because I think it's underappreciated, perhaps underestimated, but perhaps one of the most important things that we ought to be doing. And not only the first time we meet the patient or the second time we meet the patient, but every single time we see the patient, We should be doing, hold on, I have to look at it directly to see what the true recommendations are. So this is recommendation 2.11. And this is where it states specifically, we suggest targeting a sodium intake of less than two grams of sodium per day or less than 90 millimoles of sodium per day. That's for our non-Americans or less than five grams of sodium chloride per day in patients with high blood pressures and CKD. I honestly did not expect a 2C guideline to be picked number one right off the bat. So two is a weak guideline. And what does the C represent besides badness? Under the- Underdog. That's what it represents. Underdog. Okay. Yeah, let, tell, lay, lay some smack on sodium for us. What do, we, what, do we, what do we not knowing about sodium? I don't have the world's information, but what I do know is that probably each one of our patients is sodium avid. And a lot of the medications that are recommended in this are oftentimes refractory in those who have a high salt diet. So I think number one, in order for anybody to be somewhat responsive, we actually need to have them adhering to a low sodium diet or at least cutting it in half to whatever 
I'm in a, I'm from America. We're eating six, seven, eight, nine, ten grams. That's on average. We need to be careful here because people are going to go crazy. Are we going to be talking about grams of sodium or are we going to talk about grams of sodium chloride? Because I don't think we're getting 10 grams of sodium. You're probably talking about sodium chloride there. No, I'm saying... An- I think it's about 10 grams of sodium I thought it was chloride. four to five. I thought it was... Kidding? No. Yeah, no. Because that would be... If you did a 24-hour urine, that'd be... No, there's a, there was a paper on this, actually. Yeah, yeah, the NHIN. Yeah, 10,000 ends up 434 mil equivalents. And I've done a lot of 24-hour urines for sodium and a lot of hypertensives. And I, and I see a lot of 200s and 240s, which is two and a half times the RDA, but not 434. I think that I think you're looking at, at sodium chloride on that estimate there. All right. I still stand by what I say. There's no doubt about it. We eat <laughs> way more than the recommended sodium, right? Yes, I agree. No doubt about it. And But isn't a lot of the evidence circumstantial? Absolutely. You can, well, you can. You, you recently went through this, right? Yeah, I'm. You, you I'm did one a big the, dietary study. Yeah, we are just wrapping it up, so I can't talk about it. But there are many ways to think about it. One is so two C, of course. Two is that it's not one, right? So we suggest, we don't recommend. And C means that the quality of evidence is low, so that the true estimate may be quite different. So it's for two C, I think it's you can easily defend it. What's the fun in just letting things slide without arguing about it? The evidence all comes from stuff like Dash which we know was a wonderful trial in which people were given packaged food. Can you give packaged food? Can you give them lunch, breakfast, and supper? Uh, if you cannot, just telling people eat less salt is not very useful. But though Sophia nailed it. It's not something we do once. You have to keep doing it again and again and again and never stop talking about lifestyle forever. But don't... My, my so, only and, and just to, to refresh people's memory, Swap is talking about this DASH sodium study, which is what, it's 20 years old now, or it's getting close to it. It's an old study in which people were given packaged food. There were two arms. They were given either the DASH diet, which is dietary approaches to stop hypertension. It's mainly, it's a sodium neutral diet. It's not a low sodium diet, high in potassium, high in calcium, low in fat, I think. Is that pretty much it? And then on the other side was the DASH sodium diet, which was the same thing with a low sodium diet. And... There was a difference in blood pressure. It did dash sodium was better than dash, but it wasn't a lot better. Yeah. It was a pretty minimal difference in blood pressure, right? It, Three it, or four points. Mm, yeah, yeah. It was an antihypertensive. <laughs> yeah, which is one pen. Jordy, right? tell me, lay it on me. Yeah. What, what, what was the true effect there? I don't recall exactly. I believe it was about four millimeters, four to five millimeters mm. of mercury. I think. No, it was four to five millimeters. It was six point seven millimeters yeah. mercury. Yeah, in, in, yeah, yeah. In, the, in the high sodium, exactly. It depends on where you start off. Compared to um, the high, so, yeah. Compared exactly. depends on your reference route. Right. Yeah. yeah. This okay. Was, okay. Wait. This was um. I, so this is just a summary of what I have. It was six point seven systolics, and that's with an approximate one hundred millimole per, per day reduction in sodium intake, based on whatever that was. So a hundred millimole reduction. So a two gram sodium reduction mm-hmm. resulted in se- nearly seven points of millimeter b- mercury drop. And so for most people in the U.S., that's a hundred percent reduction in your sodium intake. No yeah, way. but, I but mean, most people, uh, not really, it's 50% reduction, right? Because most people are about four gram a day. And so that takes you down to two gram, which I've never seen someone successfully achieve personally, but maybe I'm just not that good of a counselor. I think that's the problem, though. I think we need to stop giving up on patients and say, if we're going to be expecting them, and I'll stay quiet with the rest of the recommendations, but to this whole group, like for Sprint or whatever, and they were handheld throughout the entire process. They had these very specific blood pressure processes. If, we're, if they're expected to follow that, why can't, can't, can't we expect them to follow a low-sodium diet? Now, granted, I agree with what you're saying, like 6.7 millimeters of mercury isn't that much, 
but it is still something. And in the grand scheme of things, our ACEs and ARBs are a lot less effective in those who are on a high sodium diet anyhow. Is anybody going to mention, anybody want to talk about J-shaped curves with cardiovascular outcomes with low sodium diets? I want you to talk about that. That is so important, right? The epidemiologic data is very concerning here. But, but Jordy, I think, but I think it's not. Or nine? I think it's not. First of all, can we first get a summary of what's going on and then we'll get the opinions on it? Is that fair? Jordy, you're going to get your piece, okay? I'm not going to deny you that. Nine, describe what, give the detail of what you're talking about. So there was, the criticism of the low sodium diet was, yes, there was a linear association with decreased blood pressure. But if you actually looked at cardiovascular outcomes, there was a J-shaped curve. So there was a study in JAMA, I don't remember the year, that showed with sodium intake lower than three grams a day, there was actually an increase in cardiovascular events. And then the PURE study showed the same thing, that if you decreased your, and this is sodium intake under three grams, there was an increase in cardiovascular events. The issue. Walk, walk me through. What's the pure study? I'm not familiar with that one. Can you give me a little? Do you know? Do you know Joel, we discussed that on FJC a few years ago. We did. Yes, we, we did. did. It's not even the supplementary data. It was like a legit in FJC. Is it in it? It was a New England Journal inter- of Medicine. Interventional trial or an observational? It was a New England it, Journal in uh, interventional or observational. I do remember that. This is the world. This is the they go all around the world. Okay, okay. I totally am intimately familiar with the pure trial. I know all the details. <laughs> The, the, the issue, I think, with these studies is that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that they were estimating sodium intake by excretion looking at this Kawasaki formula using these spot urine collections. And when, First morning urines, yep. And when, a, I think it was the, the trial of hypertension prevention study, I think, when they actually used 24-hour urine collections, they didn't see a J-shaped curve. So even people taking in less than 1,500 milligrams a day of sodium had a decrease in cardiovascular events. So I can go on about this for two hours and I won't, I promise. But very briefly, very briefly, sorry, sorry, I think something just came up on my screen. I'm going to go back to it. But very briefly, the... First of all, the way we collect, we know how much people eat in terms of their sodium intake is completely flawed. There's a ton of misclassification bias because no one's honest about how much sodium they take in in these studies. You can't just do it by a diary. If you do it by spot, as you pointed out, there are a lot of errors with doing it by spot uh, urine sodium, and it's just not actually useful at all. And 24-hour urine sodium is more useful, but is we, we talked about this on the one of the aldosterone freely filtered episodes, that it's pretty unreliable because most people over or under collect 24-hour urine collections, and especially it's a one-day slice of time. So if someone knows they're being observed for how much sodium they take in for that one 24-hour period, how do you know what that actually relates to what they actually take in on a normal 24-hour day? They're, they're restricted to their house for those 24 hours. They know they're being watched. It's it's a Hawthorne effect. And so you're going to get a very different type of very different information about all of that than you would from a controlled trial where you are actually controlling what someone takes in. The other issue is that most of these studies are heavily confounded by indication for your sodium intake because they're all obser- many of them are observational. Most many most of the studies that show J-shaped associations, it was people who chose to eat less than 2000 or 1500 grams per day of sodium. Many of those people were people who were very poorly nourished potentially, didn't have the appetite to eat taken that much perhaps because of cancer or other factors that might have caused them to die sooner. There are just so many con- unmeasured confounders in any of these observational studies, no matter the how high quality they are, that I think there's just not, they can't be overcome. We just don't know. I think all the J-shaped associations are question mark associations. I remember a study 
where it was these they have these nursing homes. I think it was Taiwan or Hong yeah. Kong, yeah. and they were veteran nursing homes where they switched the salt. A cluster RCT where they switched the salt in some of them to be potassium chloride versus sodium chloride, and they showed pretty significant effect size. Like it really was beneficial to be on the high potassium rather than the high sodium diet. And this is just people salting their food. Swap. Yeah. So, so two things is that I agree with everything that everyone has said. Uh, just keep in mind two things. One is that um, that's the first time Swap has ever uttered that sentence. The, the keep in mind it's six or seven millimeters of mercury, so it's twenty-five milligrams of chlorothalidone, which is easier. Changing your lifestyle to eat more fruits and vegetables and the cost. So there's been a study looking at Dash. You're talking about three, four dollars more per day, apart from going and buying all those stuffs and the time taking in food preparation. I'm not saying that it's not useful. I think if you are able to do that, it's fantastic. But don't expect that your patients are going to follow your advice. It, it, you're, they're more likely to take the chlorothalidone pill than, than do the DASH diet. And lastly, uh, DASH was, A, it was hypertension. It was not cardiovascular outcomes. Uh, and B, it was not in CKD patients. So that's why the 2C, because there's no evidence in CKD. But the other thing that, that Joel, you mentioned is that when you, it's not just in that nursing home study, it's not just the decrease in sodium, it was the increase in potassium, right? Potassium independently lowers blood pressure, right? Increased sodium excretion. There's actually animal data that shows that actually causes direct vasodilatation. So yeah, Ryan, but it was potassium. There's human data. And so, I'm sorry, Jordy, what'd you say? Oh, no, and I unread my mind. I was actually going to point out also complimentary to what Swapnil is just saying. There is this very cool uh, cluster randomized control trial that took place in Peru in the past few years. And it was just discussed, I think, about a year ago at one of the big, I think, the ESC conference. And I haven't seen the publication come out yet, and I apologize if I missed it. But it was these two, it was these Peruvian villages where they cluster randomized the entire village to their the salt that they could get at their only like town store where you could get your the salt that you use to cook with that they either were getting sodium chloride or 75% sodium chloride with 25% KCL and the so that potassium chloride was just a partial substitute to the point that they had done experiments and determined that nobody would notice the difference with that small of a swap out and they ended up seeing over uh, I believe it was a seven month period in the towns they measured everyone's blood pressures and they saw an average about it's only it was a two millimeter mercury difference, but it was on a population level. And when they looked at actual cumulative risk of developing hypertension, they found half the risk of people actually developing hypertension in the towns that were randomized to the salt sub- substitute. And so there, that to me is more of a potential causal association than a lot of what we've talked about. And that's of course Sophia, sort of the, this pick is looking better and it's, better. It's the cool utility it, of population types of studies. And yeah. I, I think the potassium is part of it, though. I totally agree. Wasn't there also a publication about, was it Portugal was able to reduce the amount of salt in their canned goods or something? They had a pretty... I don't okay. know. Nobody, no, I don't know that one. Uh, okay. I'm going to... I will in the look in the show notes for the Portuguese sodium experience because I don't know enough to talk about it. Okay. You, I was hoping I that somebody... Ask before we move on if anybody struggles with the population of patients that we deal with and trying to increase their potassium intake while also dealing with our RAS inhibition and everything else and managing their potassium levels and where is that that balance? Exactly. And that is partly why this became a 2C. Is they're talking about is it safe to go on a DASH kind of diet in, in patients with CKD when if they're going to use this salt, which increases potassium, is it really safe? 
Now there is a there are a couple of pilot trials which showed that it might be safe uh, to go on a dash, but they had like twenty patients and and then but we also have the fresh fruit and vegetable alkali trials that are very rich in potassium in CKD and they actually now again they selected a population that didn't have trouble with hyperkalemia. I think that was part of the entry criteria, but still people with pretty low GFRs were enrolled in the trial and they did fine on pretty high potassium diets. And to spell it out, I think what you're saying is the alkali part of that helped maintain normal kalemia. Like guess. the chloride, chloride guy. Is All right, it, guy. <laughs> Josh, it's probably it. So one, one thing I like about these guidelines, the research recommendation section at the end of every chapter is really nice. And I don't know if that's unique to these guidelines or has been there before. It's a standard, oh, it's a standard move. move. I, I think there's a nice section here on the potassium containing salt substitutes as a research recommendation in the chapter two yeah. guidelines. And I think that's actually a really good point building on what Jordi had talked about with these cool... Um, substituting some sodium for potassium containing salts in these randomized controlled trials, like understanding, can we do this to people with CKD? Can we give them more potassium and give them net benefit as opposed to net harm? I think is a really important point for future understanding here. Sorry, and the salt part is really cool because uh, you don't need to buy fruits and vegetables, right? It, It could be implemented at a different level, way more easily at a low cost. I think there are probably other benefits to fruits and vegetables beyond just blood pressure. But I think, yeah, I think certainly chlorothaladone is cheaper than fruits and vegetables for everyone. The problem with vegetables, my favorite vegetable is the potato. And a potato without salt sucks. French fries without salt. It's the worst. (laughs) Popcorn If you put KCL on a potato, is that like a double potassium bomb? I feel like it's a real problem. Your heart just stops. Right? (laughs) So now we know what happened with that soccer player right before the game. Yeah, I'm sure it was potassium chloride on a, on, a, on a pump frites. Okay, Josh, are you ready with your first draft pick? Oh, I'm so excited and, for my first guys, draft pick. And guys, honestly, 25 minutes per draft pick, we're going to be here all night. We do need to think. I, I know we were super excited to talk because that was a very juicy topic, Sophia, and really good. But Josh, what I do you got? I it would be. Sure. So I think my draft pick is probably the headline draft pick of the entire class of recommendations here. That's going to be recommendation 3.1.1. We suggest that adults with a high blood pressure and CKD be treated with a target systolic blood pressure goal of less than 120 millimeters of mercury when tolerated using standardized office blood pressure measurement. I think like picking the 120 marker on the field is this is where we're going to go for and we're not going to shoot for 140. We're not going to shoot for 130, depending on your albuminuria. 120 is where we're going to aim for because that's where the highest level of evidence is. I think it's the biggest takeaway for me from these guidelines. And if anything is practice changing about these guidelines, and we can go there later, I think that's probably the thing that we should really be pushing on for most patients that we see. I think everyone agrees with you. I, I, that's great. I'm just happy to give other people a chance to talk. I don't want to just keep talking forever. But I did go back and look at your guys' last, because I, I actually didn't do any Twittering before 2019. Stop laughing, Joel. <laughs> I, I didn't either. Brand new to the thing. Dirty liar. So I think it was even, I can't remember, now I can't even remember, but you guys were going over guidelines again. And now I'm not even remember which ones they were because I'm getting nervous. 2017 ACC. AHA, ACC, 2017 blood pressure guidelines are the most recent ones. Yeah, and everybody was on the chat and they were like, yeah, we're really going to have to push people to start adopting this less than 130 over 80. And I don't know if it's going to happen and then it's going to be really difficult and we really have to push hard to do it. 
And literally we're three years later and And we're just pushing it lower. So I think if there's one question I have, and this is really like a question for Swap because he's the person I go to with all my blood pressure questions in life. Has there ever been a randomized controlled trial where shooting for a lower blood pressure goal has been worse for patients than shooting for a high blood pressure goal? Because really we have all these trials, including Sprint, where 120 is better than 140. We have some of the PKD trials where 110 is better than higher blood pressure measurements. We don't, like, whoa, we understand whoa, whoa, these. Whoa, 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 whoa. Better being what, though? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, Slower yeah, rate yeah, of progression. Yeah. Slow your roll. Slower rate of progression of total kidney volume increasing, I thought, was the measurement. Is that Oh, 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 oh yeah. The, the, the made-up made outcome. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. The made-up outcome. Look, if we're going to go with surrogate outcomes. Halt PKD. Halt PKD total kidney volume outcome. I understand there are theoretical harms of lowering blood pressure in a population setting. I understand there are individual harms of lowering blood pressure for individuals that I have seen with my own hands, that lowering a blood pressure for a certain person can be harmful. But in a population setting, have we ever seen that lowering a blood pressure systolic goal has been harmful to a group of people? So there have been a few examples, not starkly bad, but for example, in Accord, uh, which was in diabetes, the uh, mortality was increased uh, in diabetics, but it wasn't significantly increased, and mortality was a secondary outcome. And they halted the study oh, because... And it was only mortality. But, but, but stroke was significantly decreased. So the it depends on how you look at ACCORD. And, and again, ACCORD was factorial, and, and there has been some very cool analysis showing all this happened in the ones in the group in which in the it was more intense in- glycemic control glycemic group, right? exactly like those exactly. folks had even worse outcomes yeah so Srini Bedu had done some very cool post hoc analyses one of which showed that the people that were not in the intensive glucose arm so the ones that were in the standard glucose arm who had intensive blood pressure control that they had a reduction in adverse outcomes so it looked more similar to actually sprint if you excluded the people who had more intensive glycemic control um, the thought being that this was contamination from the group with more intensive glycemic control in Accord who had worse outcomes. And so that that was somehow also affecting our ability to interpret their ben- any potential benefit from intensive blood pressure control. Help, help me out, Jordy. When we do these two-by-two two factorial designs, the whole point is that the two can't be interact. There can't be an interaction between the two factors. Exactly. Right? They're supposed to be completely independent. Exactly. And in this, and this case, is- they're saying that failed and that they were probably not independent of one another. And that was the unfortunate failure of Accord as much as so much time and energy went into it. It was an element elegant design, except unfortunately these things likely interacted, the two interventions. That said, another really interesting post-hoc analysis also done by Srini Bedu, who does this incredible work, post-hoc work in Accord, showed that more intensive blood pressure lowering in Accord was associated with higher risk of incident kidney disease, which is also concerning because we're talking about lower blood pressure in CKD patients, and we wonder if there's a possibility that it's causing a higher risk of adverse renal outcomes. And there were very few CKD patients in Accord to even be able to extrapolate that from. Is it possible we could be causing renal harm in terms of benefiting our patients' cardiac risk? And that's where the question still lies. So, so Jordi, to play devil's advocate here, right, is that increased incidence of kidney disease, that just a creatinine bump that we see when we lower people's blood pressure? Is that the deliberate hypoperfusion that protects kidney function long-term that we could be seeing. And we don't know that in Accord. We know in Sprint it was likely hemodynamic because there are these great studies showing tubular markers that show that it's probably a hemodynamic effect on kidney function, whereas in Accord we don't have that those post-hoc analyses. 
I thought they published that in 2018. Yep. For AJKD. Sprint. About they do Accord. for Accord too? I thought it was yeah. Sprint. Yeah. yeah, yeah so they, looked at, they looked at, and it was basically like an intensive versus standard. And they looked at IL-18, KIM-1, MCP-1, and YKL-40. And basically all of those were decreased in the intensive BP lowering group. This is an Accord. Mm-hmm. This is Accord. So both Accord and Sprint, when we look at biomarkers of AKI, they're actually lower in the intensive blood pressure treatment group, inferring that the changes that we see in creatinine are just hemodynamic changes. I'm still shooting for the blood pressure of less than 50 systolic goal. That's where I'm going with this. Yeah, but so there is the whole aspect about trials. The ACC point is really cool because Sprint was like JNC went from went to 140. Other guidelines were going down. So JNC 8 or late or weight or whatever went up to 140. And then AHA went down to 130. But if you look at the guideline, the, the evidence, it comes from Sprint, which is 120. So when Sprint has 120 as a target, why choose one? AHA make a, made a pragmatic decision there to say, hey, let's go to 130 for a bunch of reasons. One of them being that their feeling, which goes into maybe my or Jordy's draft pick of standardized office BP, is that you have to use standardized office BP. And AHA thought that in, in the US, most people are not using standardized office BP. So in that case, then to put a 120 target when you're not measuring blood pressure the way it was done in sprint might be dangerous. The second thing is that I'm told that in many places, these guidelines could be held as a performance standard and a quality measure, right? So then if you say, hey, you have to achieve 120, otherwise you will get dinged or you will fail in some quality measure, that would not be great. Because even in sprint, they didn't achieve 120. The mean achieved was about 120, which doesn't mean you should not... 122, exactly, in the final. But who's counting? (laughs) Thank Uh, thank God. That Jordy stopped that from getting through into the podcast. Thanks, Jordy. We appreciate you gotta, that. You got to give them know. every credit that they have, though, because honestly, everyone's. Uh, this is a big point of criticism that people have: is why 120 when people didn't even achieve 120. And I asked Paul Welton this. I asked all the the folks this who I think are the smart folks in the room. Paul Welton, for those who don't know, is the first author of the ACCAHA guideline. And the response is because it was an assignment of 120 in mm-hmm. sprint. It wasn't what was achieved. It was an assignment, and that's very different per Swapnel point than what Jan Lakitis measures or on any of these quality performance metrics when they are looking at your achieved blood pressure. And so it's very problematic because a lot of these quality assurance me- metrics, exactly as Swapnil said, use the guideline as their threshold, but that's very different than what our expected blood pressure is. Because when you tell somebody that my goal blood pressure is less than 120, what they're actually expecting is for the average blood pressure in the population to be less than 120, not for everybody to achieve a blood pressure less than 120. Except for in Lake Wobegon, where everybody's below 120. If we have a motto for the guidelines that we can draft, or like one sentence we can draft, there's this sentence in the chapter where they're comparison, comparing the, the 120 goal versus the 130 goal from the ACCHA guidelines. The KDGA workgroup takes the view that patients should not be penalized for suboptimal clinical practice. And I think if we could just print that in a giant banner and say, just because we suck at taking blood pressure in an office, it doesn't mean we shouldn't do a better job and treat people to a better blood pressure goal. That alone would, would be a great outcome of this guideline. Okay, one of the things that I had a concern about is when they designed Sprint, they specifically said, hey, we're not including anybody with diabetes because that's already been, that question's been answered with Accord. 
and then we get and then we're only going to enroll people that are older than 60 50 50 55 or 50 yeah 50 55 50 with cardiovascular disease we're only going to enroll people with cardiovascular disease and and they have all these risk factors laid out because we really want to be able to get outcomes in the short period of time in a sprint style study in a short relatively short time we're not going to follow these guys for five years we're trying to get it done in a couple of three years and they stopped the study early even they were able to get their they got their significant results early when they crafted their enrollment population very carefully and now a few years later we've got kdigo and said yeah this is good for everybody even people with CKD, I know we didn't really enroll that many people with CKD, but we'll throw those in here. But but come on, it's three thousand patients with CKD or two thousand nine hundred, yeah. which is which is the probably the largest CKD blood pressure trial. And if you look at the CKD, it was a pre-specified subgroup. CKD was a pre-specified subgroup. And if you look at the mortality outcome, it was significant in the CKD subgroup, which was published in AJKD. No, Jason, the later by Alfred Schunger. Uh, unfortunately, because it was stopped early, the CKD subgroup didn't have enough events for a subgroup. The major trial had the full sprint had uh, a huge reduction when the, each of the subgroups were empowered because it was stopped early. But the mortality difference is significant. Don't just downgrade sprint for that. And my concern is that you did have a select population that were enrolled in sprint, and now we're rolling this out to everybody, right? There was at one time there were enrollment criteria, but now this is these conclusions we're considering them generalizable. Yeah, and the this came up in the chat also. So, for example, the Hypertension Canada guidelines say 140, but then if you have fulfilled this criteria and you don't have proteinuria more than one gram and and GFR less than 20, then go for 120. The Australian guidelines are somewhat similar. They say 1A for 140, and they have a 2A or 2B for 120. So they have two kind of uh, stratified guidelines saying that not everyone will go for 140, uh, 120. But Charlie Thompson came on the chat and he said that if we did that, we thought about doing that for KDGO. But if we did that, then people would choose the easier option and they will all go for the easier option and they will not go to 120. They are trying to, you know, nudge people saying, do the best you can, go for 120. Uh, and that's a laudable goal. I think also CKD is such a heterogeneous group of patients that we don't have such a great biomarker to say these are the people who won't benefit from 120 versus the ones who will. I don't think there's a physiology that's so different from in CKD patients versus these other high risk for ASCVD event patients that we can say they won't benefit from a goal from 120. We don't see significant harms from the lower blood pressure goal. And and so I feel like holding back and having this 140 with the option to go to 120 seems like a hedge that that doesn't help our patients and only helps ourselves maybe feel better. But we're not doing right by our patients if we do that. One of the, some of the most interesting publications that have come out of Sprint after the primary publication have been the ones that have looked at dementia or mental acuity and falls, and none of them have shown negative consequences to the low blood pressure. I expected there to, those to be show a lot of detriment to the low blood pressure, and none of them have shown that. What's interesting is I looked at this too. This is they looked at the greater than seventy five year olds, and they looked at fit versus unfit versus frail. And they demonstrated in all of those populations that actually they all benefited. But the frailty index that they utilized for these people was like 2.1 or something like that, which is considered like mildly frail. So 
I actually don't even know where that stands in my concept of what frail is. I just gave a talk on this exact topic for American Geriatric Society, and it was just so fascinating hearing from the audience, hearing from other folks who are dealing with the generalizability of this to older, frailer patients. And so things we really need to keep in mind, I am a huge proponent of this lower blood pressure goal in the right patient, but this is not a set of, of blood pressure goals that have been tested and tried in frail, older patients. The frailest people in Crick were walking, talking, like 85-year-olds who are golfing every day and who are able to come to every Wait, appointment. are we doing Crick now? Is this oh, no, Crick Oh, my sprint? God, Crick, Sprint. I'm sorry. It's sprint. And it's Sprint. The frail patients in Sprint were not actually... Braille. These they, they, they excluded people who were nursing home bound. They excluded people that they had any concerns about the possibility of non-adherence. And there are a lot of folks who argue that if you looked at a typical person who's a, like a true geriatric patient who's frailer beyond being able to play golf once a week, then it's not going to apply. And I don't necessarily fully agree with that because we're seeing enormous cognitive benefits with Sprint. We're seeing all of these other amazing benefits with the lower blood pressure goal. But I do think there are plenty of people that we really need to think more carefully about. For instance, the significant orthostatic patients, potentially, even though there's some argument now, and Steve Jorachek's doing really cool work trying to understand better whether or not more intensive blood pressure control may be helpful in, in orthostatic patients. But also just these patients that are at high risk of falls, patients who you're going to put them on a diuretic and they're going to end up having gout flares and ending up having all these other adverse outcomes at the age of 97 and aren't going to want to come back to your clinic. And, and I think that there's just a lot of these geriatricians who are very skeptical of, of the benefits of lower blood pressure and were really defensive of the JNC8 recommendation. So I just wanted to add one more thing. I think this is my concern about some of the guidelines that are presented here, like a, a blood pressure goal. And maybe I'll change my opinion over time when I've had the opportunity to apply this to a, a broad sweeping group of my patients. But from what I see, there these straightforward guidelines are helpful for those of us who are able to think critically about this. And I do think that there are plenty of nephrologists who are going to do just fine with this, but they're is a whole new group of providers that's coming up that are needed because we have rising numbers of CKD and ESRD, et cetera, et cetera, like our nurse practitioners and our, we'll just say, advanced providers. And while some of them are absolutely wonderful, a lot of them are just out of training and their training is absolutely minimal and their ability to apply these guidelines in the correct population and in the correct patient is going to be far more limited and so I do think we're going to see some harms if it's applied in the wrong patient population. I hear that criticism, but you can make that criticism for any guideline, right? Guidelines aren't meant to and capture every different unique patient, right? It's meant to be an, an, an catchment to give people advice on what to do. And I feel like the data we have to say less than 120 improves mortality, improves cardiovascular outcomes. If they had said less than 140 is fine and switched it and said, but consider 120 in certain patients, we'd be leaving a lot of cardiovascular issues and mortality on the table, I think. If I think if I'm a new nephrologist starting out in practice with my army of nurse practitioners and APPs, and I treat everyone with systolic goal of less than 120, I probably do net good as opposed to net harm, as opposed to the person who treats to a systolic goal of less than 140. And, and I suppose we can argue that based on how frail the people are who come to see me or how what other comorbidities they have. But in a population level, this makes sense. Like we should be treating people to a goal of less than 120 because that's what the best trial in blood pressure, the sprint trial tells us that we should do. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And I was playing devil's advocate just in, on behalf of the geriatricians that are constantly knocking down our door saying, what the heck were you guys thinking with this? But I will say, I think that the best thing this is going to do beyond anything else is shift everyone's Overton windows. It's going to say, instead of you thinking that 140 over 90 should be your goal, so blood pressures in the 140s are okay, or then saying 130 over 80 is your goal. So therefore, if my patient comes in with a blood pressure of 136 over 84, they're fine. Now, if you set 120s as your goal, you start shifting your thought process. You start thinking, oh, blood pressures in the 140s are pretty high. I should be doing something about that. Uh, and I think that's the best thing this is going to achieve. And that patient who comes in at 108 over 52, you're not reaching to pull off, stop some of their blood pressure medicines. You're yeah. actually like, actually... We're cool there. I am yeah. going to add on to this also. I, I don't want you guys to think that I am in disagreement of this lesson 120. I just think that things need to be thought through before it's completely yeah. applied. And I can guarantee that a large percentage, at least I can't speak anywhere beyond the United States where clinics are not yet outfitted to be doing standardized blood pressures. And I know I'm putting the cart before the horse in terms of our drafting here. And that's probably why, it, why it's placed up as high as it is in terms of recommendations. But that's hard to achieve. Not that it should not be achieved, but if our providers are not doing that and they're targeting blood pressures of less than 20 without doing standardized blood pressures, or at least trying to do home blood pressures or ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, I think it's really dangerous. You stole yeah. my draft. I'm sorry. No, well, I didn't steal no, it. No, don't I, worry. I just can't. <laughs> no, we're deleting everything Sophia said because she's already had a draft pick. She's trying to get her second pick in. That's not how it are works. We, you didn't trade up. Are we still on Josh's draft pick? Jordy. No, we're done. We're can, done. Can, I, can I say one, I one last to... thing? What, what? Except, we're done except for Swap's last thing. It yeah, better so, be good, Swap. Uh, what I want to say is that in, in patients with CKD, it's easy to say that go for 120, go for lower blood pressure. But you're often struggling, right? Like the GFR is 25. They've got hyperkalemia, so they're off the ACE inhibitor. They've got hyponatremia when you did the chlorothalidone. So you're like, okay, what do I add? Spironolactone is out of, uh, is not a choice. You can always use minoxidil. So, so exactly. So you're reaching for minoxidil or, or hydralazine, God forbid, or, or, or terazosin. And these are not great drugs. So I'm not sure that going from 128 to 119 with the minoxidil is necessarily the right thing to do. So there is that small aspect of me that I will say maybe not in every patient. Maybe you can just ta maybe you can just target 122 swap. But like Jordi or swap, the original blood pressure trials are like reserpine versus like clonid like protoclonidine, right? Like it's not like we had they had great blood pressure medicines in Shep or yeah. in these other or in like yeah. these other no, things. No, but th but those they were treating diastolics of 110. Like, I get you, it. You, <laughs> bloodletting would have made these people survive longer. Are we not going to um, talk about diastolic here? Are we just moving on? Oh, God, we're I think we're moving on. Time. Yeah, no. waste, We're so moving on. It's an hour in. We've got two draft picks in. Jordy, you're, you're, on, the direct, you're on the clock as the, as the terminology goes. Uh, so I think that I, uh, there are more than one of us who are going to say, the Swapnil stole my first draft because he said standardized blood pressure measurement. And I no, I haven't. You can go for it. Yeah, you can go for it. Jordy, the only things off the board, the only thing off the board are 211 and 311. Everything ah. else is on the board still. All right, well, because I just accused Sophia of stealing mine, I'll leave Swapnil his, and I'm going to say suggesting out-of-office blood pressure measurements and ambulatory monitoring. At, or That was mine! Because I think that, I really think that it's incredibly important, and as someone who does a lot of research in that area, it's an obsession of mine, clearly, so I, I had to 
pick that one. Um, but I, I just, I think we should be doing this in all of our patients. We're, even I realize that there is a lack of randomized control trials, randomly assigning somebody to a out-of-office blood pressure goal versus an in-office blood pressure goal. It's coming. The master trial is underway in Europe. Hopefully COVID didn't completely destroy it. And we'll get those answers. But we know that their, their prognostic association with outcomes is just incredibly important. We know that the, now the US Wait, wait, rewind. Rewind, Jordy. Yeah. What do we know? We know that the association of out-of-office blood pressures are more strongly associated with mortality and with cardiovascular risk than in office blood pressures. Is that casual office blood pressures or? Standardized office blood pressures. Standardized blood pressure. Yeah, yeah. Even better than standardized. (laughs) So wait, some guy just wrapping that Omron that they bought at Kmart for $32, that's better than sitting in a quiet room for five minutes? As long as you have uh, Dr. McManus in the UK teaching them how to use their home blood pressure cup. But no, yeah. So it's, these people were, instructed how, people were instructed how to use it? Yes. So there are several big observational studies. A lot of it was originally done in Japan and in Europe. Very little done in the US historically, but more and more ambulatory blood pressure monitoring data, at least in the US, has been coming out. But for with regard to home blood pressure, several large population-based studies have demonstrated that just a simple out-of-office home blood pressure that when someone is trained to use it correctly using a validated home blood pressure device is more strongly associated with your risk of cardiovascular disease and your risk of uh, mortality than in office blood pressure, standardized office blood pressure. Even ambulatory blood pressure monitoring we know is our considered our quote-unquote reference standard with regard to risk of cardiovascular disease and mortality. But the recent study with Joe, by Joe Schwartz and Daishi Shimbo and Jack showed that maybe home blood pressure might be more associated with target organ damage in some populations, even than ambulatory. Both of these are superior to office. And the problem is that there's no trial that's ever been done yet randomly assigning people to a blood pressure goal using out-of-office blood pressures versus using an office blood pressure. So that's what's missing, and that's why it's not... This seems to be in sync with our modern telemedicine movement yeah. that we're seeing with, I'm not sure if you heard about this, this COVID thing's a big deal and people are doing a lot of home, home therapies. I'm like jumping at the bit here. So like the reason I didn't pick any of the chapter one recommendations as my draft pick was because I really love ambulatory blood pressure monitoring and home blood pressure monitoring. And I hate how this chapter relegates them to second tier status versus the standardized office blood pressure measurement. And maybe this is how I don't understand how guidelines work or like the language of recommend versus suggest or the grading of 1A versus 2B. But it seems given that we all suck at measuring in-office blood pressures. Josh, we're in nephrology. You don't need to worry about 1A. Don't even worry about that. Got it. So 1B versus 2C recommendations. Given that we all suck at measuring in office blood pressures, which has already been established, and given that we should rec- we should measure standardized office blood pressures, which is the gold standard in the SPRINT trial and the ACCORD trial and these are trials, but that we know that ambulatory blood pressure measurements and probably home blood pressure measurements correlate even more with outcomes than whatever it is we measure in the office. Why aren't we recommending those? Why don't we recommend the home monitoring? And if our guidelines mandated home monitoring, it would get paid for a lot more easily than it is now. And that's the piece of this that I I, I had a little hesitation to go for as the pick. 
And so their big opposition that they cited was that there's no randomized control evidence, which is what I was getting at, that's randomly assigned people to a blood pressure goal of using office blood pressure versus out-of-office blood pressure. So that's the reason that it's not like a top-tier recommendation, but this is still a pretty strong recommendation for when, you, when it comes down to nephrology guidelines. And the USPSTF, the United States Preventive Service Task Force, recommends out-of-office blood pressure monitoring for a diagnosis of hypertension. And so that's as high of a mark as you're going to get, is having a USPSTF recommendation. And so this is fair game now. This is what we should be doing. This is standard of care, but the key is going to be doing it right. Ambulatory blood pressure monitoring is pretty hard to mess up, though you can. Home blood pressure monitoring is very easy to mess up. Patients are buying anything off the internet. They're not necessarily validated devices. They are often using wrist cuffs, which are harder to use correctly and often are not validated, or using these cuffless devices, which there is no such thing as a valid cuffless blood pressure device on the market. FDA clear does not mean that it actually is anything better than a random number generator. That put me on the record for saying that. So you, it should be an upper arm. <laughs> Preach, I love it. It should be an upper arm validated cuff Check out either validatebp.org, that's the American Medical Association's website. Check out Hypertension Canada's listing of validated devices or stridebp.org, which is the International Society of Hypertension's list of validated devices. Tell patients how to do it correctly. They have time to do it correctly. All of these standardized steps that we don't do in the office ourselves. As long as they can follow those simple instructions, they can do it. And as long as you keep retraining them and reminding them to do, that's also critically important. I love targetbp.org's website. It's the AHA and American Medical Association's website that has great infographics to walk people, th patients through how to do this at all levels of health literacy. I'm off my pedestal. But are we really going to send everyone with ambulatory blood pressure monitors? I mean, that can you imagine having thousands of people in your well, clinic? Well, it's not ambulatory. No, it's not going to be ambulatory. It's going to be home. Th it's that's fine. Home. But then we should be able to check a damn blood pressure correctly in office the way it's supposed to be done rather than teaching every single patient how to do it correctly, which fine, we can do that. Hey, but not if you want to draft if you want to draft one one, you can draft one one, but don't be stepping on Jordy's don't be stepping <laughs> on Jordy's draft pick, okay? Come and on, it we're also on, we're doing home uh, and sorry, one last thing though, no matter how well you're gonna do that in office blood pressure, even if it overcomes white coat hypertension, it's not gonna overcome mass hypertension. And anywhere between 10 to 25% of our patients have mass hypertension where you have a normal office blood pressure and an elevated out of office blood pressure. Nothing you can do can predict who those people are and they're ticking time bombs. Mass hypertension is associated with the same amount of risk as sustained hypertension. And we gotta be finding those folks. That was still a pedestal, Jordy, but it was a good one. <laughs> I was going to say, I've never seen Jordy get off of her pedestal. Man. That woman is permanently on the pedestal. That's fine. <laughs> I, I totally agree with you, VA, and I think that we are able, we don't, we have one ambulatory blood pressure machine that we can send home with patients, and it's it gets misplaced. I have no idea where it is right now. But I can say, safely say, well, I don't really know the numbers, but probably 75% of our patients have a blood pressure cuff at home. And whether or not they're actually checking their blood pressures is one thing, but it's easy. We just put an order for prosthetics. It gets sent to them. They can come and they can get trained by our pharmacist or whoever's sending it out to them. I guess it's probably prosthetics who sends it to them. But VA has a lot of challenges, but that's one of the fantastic things that they can do. Uh, and the fact that we have that many patients that have blood pressure cuffs is, I think, pretty impressive. Whether or not they're all following the instructions and checking their blood pressures, usually they say, I think it's somewhere in my closet. But 
That being said, we can overcome all of those obstacles. Ambulatory blood pressure monitoring gives you a way more information, right? There's, there's data on variability, there's data on nocturnal dipping that home doesn't necessarily give you. We don't still know exactly what to do with many of those factors, their prognostic significance. But the big reason, I think, Josh, that this didn't make it is that what number should we choose? The AHA kind of made up a table saying 120 of this means 110 of that, which they pulled out of the air. If they said, hey, you should be using home, should they say 130? Should they say 110? Should they say 115? That was the issue, right? Because Sprint used this method. So by the guideline, then you don't want to extrapolate even more. So if it, it went, it's already a 2B for, for 120. If you instead said not office, but home, it would become a, I don't know, a practice point. And do you use daytime or do you use the full 24 hour in the ambulatory patients? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's funny. I, I, I tell all my patients to do blood pre- home blood pressure monitoring and Walmart has a series three Omron, which is on the list of validated blood pressure cuffs. Yeah. It's 32 bucks. And there's a million Walmarts around and at $32, this is the copay for a lot of drugs that these patients are using month after month. It's a one-time purchase. It's just, it's, a lot of the, the resistance and the friction to doing these home blood pressures, it's not that bad. You just you pull it right up and there and say, hey, Walmart got it for $32. And they're like, oh, okay, I can afford that. It's not that hard. Oh, I think that $32 is actually prohibitive for a lot of patients. I would imagine in Detroit it is. That was a very subtle dig. A very subtle dig at Detroit, okay? No, I was just talking to you specifically. I mean, $32 buys I you can... a lot in Detroit, guys. Let's not forget. It's like a house <laughs> in some neighborhoods of Detroit. <laughs> I can tell you that my veterans, that's a lot of money. It's fortunate that they have a lot paid for, but you bring up that amount and some of them say, I can't afford that. But yeah, that ability to prescribe through prosthetics is clutch. I love that prosthetics order when I was a resident. That was so good. I miss that. I love the uh, Josh. I used to visit the VA gift shop. Oh, that gift shop is amazing. (laughs) I get all my kids' toys from there. Oh, that gift shop is amazing. I got it. I got a Play-Doh volcano the other day, and it's like weekly. I bought so many Hot Wheels from that gift shop for my son. (laughs) It was great. A dollar a car. What a deal. So a couple of points for the blood pressure cuffs, how to get them paid for. One thing I did want to throw in is that American Kidney Fund will pay for them for a lot of our patients, especially dialysis patients. So we've had a lot of luck appealing to them and asking for help covering it for dialysis patients. For my patients who are poor, who are pre-dialysis, we also have a lot of luck with Medicaid and Medicare covering it, but you have to find the right pharmacy that's negotiated with the Medicare or Medicaid provide like whatever their negotiation terms are and you can um, usually find one locally that has that you can often get it covered also medical device stores often have good relationships with the insurance companies and have figured out ways to get it covered so it's the equivalent of prosthetics it makes unfortunately it's a barrier because patients have to find the medical device store but uh, as long as there is one that that's in your area then that's often a good option so i love getting people everyone should have a blood pressure monitor in their house but the whole guidelines here are all for non-dialysis dependent CKD folks. And I think there are literally no guidelines or no guidance on what a blood pressure in a dialysis patient should be. I've never seen a a study showing that we can make dialysis patients live longer with a blood pressure of X versus Y. But Jordi, if there's something I should be shooting for, please. Yeah, there are a couple of cool studies underway right now just trying to understand what blood pressure goals should be in dialysis patients. Most of what's been done previously has been observational, but not all of it. There are a couple of cool pilot trials that were done, and there was one that was just funded by the NIH that will be an R01 multi-center trial to identify in dialysis patients whether or not an intensive blood pressure, or whether or not, sorry, blood pressure goal guided by pre-dialysis versus midweek home blood pressure was more strongly associated with 
with outcomes. And so we'll get more data. Thankfully, that's underway and people are interested in this area. We just don't have a lot yet. It's another U-shaped association with the observational data where lower pre-dialysis blood pressure and higher pre-dialysis blood pressure are both associated with increased risk. But I'm sure all those cirrhotic patients with blood pressures of 90 have pretty low out- poor exactly. outcomes to start with, right? So and it's heart hard failure, to know yeah. Too. Exactly. Okay, nine. You're on the clock. It's your draft pick. I, I can't believe this is still out here. This is the Tom Brady in the sixth round pick. The fact that recommendation 1.1 hasn't been picked is is crazy to me. So this is recommending standardized office blood pressure measurements and preference routine office blood pressure measurement for the management of high blood pressure in adults. Literally nothing else in this guideline matters without that recommendation. Everything else that people have said is contingent on checking the blood pressure correctly. If there's any paradigm shift that needs to happen post-publication of these guidelines, is we got to figure out how to pick, how to measure blood pressure correctly. The way we do it now is a patient is stuck in traffic. They're 20 minutes late for their appointment. They're trying to find parking. They're running up to the clinic. We throw a cuff on them. The MA is reconciling medications and their blood pressure is X and we treat that. And that's clearly incorrect. There was a study, when was it? It was in the Journal of American Heart Association. I want you to be real careful when you say the word we, I, okay? Because I'm not part of that team, yeah. okay? I'm, we're not, the rest of us aren't at private practice hospitals where we have separate screening rooms for blood pressure. I wish we were. That's what we need is a separate area just for blood pressure. And there was a study that looked at the kind of quote unquote standard clinic blood pressure measurements versus how they're done in sprint and kind of these other studies. And the difference was anywhere from yeah, 40... Paul draws. It was JAMA Internal Medicine. Paul draws in December using the sprint data and the EHR blood pressures. I think that's the one that you're thinking of. Yeah. Jody, can you just summarize uh, what were they doing in the study? So Paul draws uh, was the lead author, D-R-A-W-Z. And he led a study using the patients that were enrolled in sprint. Uh, it was their automated office blood pressures that were measured, the standardized blood pressures in sprint. All the patients that were in VAs and a bunch of other patients patients from Sprint, he was able to get their electronic health record data. And he contrasted their Sprint blood pressures at any given time with their EHR blood pressures, so their standard clinical blood pressures that were not standardized. This is the specific information that Sprint did not include in the study, that part of the Sprint protocol did not include a routine blood pressure. Correct. And everybody Free, flipped out when Sprint was published. Like, why can't we see what their routine blood pressure was? Why can we only look at this? And he had, he ended up hacking his way and finding that data, at least in a subset of patients. Exactly. He's a pretty great guy. I'm very extremely okay, impressed cool. that he did okay, this. Okay, that is cool. <laughs> and so everyone- And what's, and what's I, the R squared on that? No correlation? 0.4, what do we got? Everybody wants to put a correction factor, right? Everybody wants to say, oh, your office blood pressure is just 10 points higher than Sprint or 8 points higher than Sprint. And you can't do that because it was all over exactly. And I cut, I cut off Nyan. I'll let you keep No, going. no, no. That's I'm fine. So that, that's actually that. a different study. The study that I was thinking about was from Uggerwall. That's the one that was in our the summary. We had the Agarwell data. Yeah, so this is this was in the Journal of the American Heart Association, and it was patients with chronic kidney disease who they measured routine clinic blood pressure and then did it the way Sprint did it on the same day. And what they found was the average systolic blood pressure was 12.7 millimeters mercury lower when they did it using how Sprint did it. 
and the the limits on that was anywhere from 46 millimeters mercury lower to 20.7 millimeters mercury higher. So we have no right, idea yeah. what we're the, the importance is not the average. The average is not important at all. It's that there was no correlation whatsoever. So we have no yeah. clue. I have no clue what I'm doing with these clinic blood pressures. And so... It's, put a blindfold on and drive down the highway fast. <laughs> in fact, I think we're doing more harm treating some of these. And the reason we see adverse effects is because we're treating blood pressures that aren't actually 150, 160, and they're quite a bit lower, and we're actually making people hypotensive. Yeah, exactly. If you are not measuring it properly, you should not be treating something at all. And so the question is, how are we going to how are we going to do that in every clinic in, in the country? And the other thing is what's going on is people are being like, hey, did you see the new KDGO recommendations? And they say, yes, that the blood pressure is supposed to be less than 120 over 80, totally ignoring recommendation number 1.1, that we need to use standardized office blood pressure measurements. And in, in well, the- Sophia, you got the first draft pick and you did pick it recommendation uh, 2.11. So I'm not sure if you have a lot of standing here. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 but the thing is, if you step back, if you people have taken this print standardized office BP, you look at 140 or 130 or any other guideline or any other blood pressure number, it comes from some trial. And in the trial, how did they measure blood pressure? It was done. It was not done the way Nayan was describing. He measures blood pressure in his office. So even if you chose 140 based on whatever trial it was before, you were not measuring blood pressure the way those trials did measure blood pressure. Whether it is a, an automated device or it was a mercury, but in the trials, what they did is they made sure you were resting, you were quiet, the blood pressure was measured properly by someone who knew what they were doing. And if you do not use those kind of methods in your practice, then really you are not treating blood pressure properly. The advantage with the Omron device that was used, and there are a bunch of them. There's nothing special about Omron, Welch Allen, Microlife. A bunch of them have these kind of devices which do an average of three after whatever pre-specified waiting time is there. Is that they take away the human element of error outside, right? Like you don't have a choice. You cannot say, oh, five minutes are not up. I'll just take the blood pressure. They have that fixed five minutes of rest. They do an average of three, two or three or whatever you want to specify it. So it takes all your shortcuts out. You have no choice. This is the measurement you're going to get. You still can make some errors, right? So it's not free of, of errors. The patient can sit with their, you know, legs crossed and, and they can be talking or fidgeting or whatever. But it takes a bunch of the noise out. And, and they have described that you can do it even in a waiting room. You can have a small, you put a curtain in a waiting room, put make that as your blood pressure measurement uh, area. And that's good enough. That's better than the sloppy uh, way Nyan checks blood pressure. I appreciate you singling me out, but come on. There you go. <laughs> the way things are done in this country is pretty similar, I think. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I'm just pulling. Sorry, I can't wait for the day that I get a blood pressure checked where the nurse does not ask me, what's your level of pain right now? And are you getting abused at home? while the cuff is expanding on my arm, because that's our standard blood pressure protocol. As someone is getting their blood pressure checked, you ask. And you're sitting on an exam table with your legs dangling? As a woman of 5'4", <laughs> my legs will never touch the ground at the exam table. <laughs> I have a seizure every time I go for my primary care visit. I'm like, I can't believe this is how you're measuring my blood pressure. It's the worst. It's blood pressure measurement induced white coat hypertension. Do we feel like this set of guidelines with this strong recommendation, and this is like the strongest recommendation in the bunch, aside from use an ACE inhibitor to treat CKD with proteinuria level recommendation, does that give you power to go to the people who run your clinic and say, I need a room for blood pressure checking because the guidelines for this area of medicine say I need five minutes of my patient alone in a room 
checking their blood pressure to get a reasonable, reliable measurement. Does this empower me to go back and ask for space and resources to do this? Does it need to come from the ACCHA instead of KDGO to do that? Does it need to come from someone else? Like, how does this turn into clinical practice? The problem is real estate's expensive. That's the issue. Cost-effectiveness studies. And how much more space you actually need. If you've got a really big clinic and you're doing blood pressures and you have to wait between each one, plus they have to sit and be quiet and be calm, that can be up to 15 minutes in a space that could be utilized otherwise. I'm pretty sure you can't bill for quiet and calm. There's no code for five minutes of quiet and calm. In the end, you got to say, is one of our jobs to treat hypertension? And everybody's going to say, yeah, that's one of our jobs. Then we can't treat hypertension unless we do it this way. And what you're talking about is 10 minutes. You need five minutes to measure the blood pressure, three, me- three readings with two minutes between each, six minutes. And you need five minutes of quiet. It's 11 minutes of time. You put people in the room and then you walk out. And then you and you go into another room. And I, when I'm in my clinic, I run three rooms. I got a guy getting a blood pressure. I got a, get, a guy getting their meds being wrecked. And I got a room where I'm seeing the patient. And that's what it takes for me to run my clinic. And this is what you need. And, and we're, our, our clinic is an American Society of Hypertension Center of Excellence or whatever they call it. And this is what we needed to show to get that certificate. And this is something that we're very proud of and we put on our wall and we brag about all the time. So we're in a, we're a hypertension center also, the level one hypertension center. And we don't have, because it's Philadelphia, I guess, we don't have that kind of space. Like we will always only have one exam room. But what we do actually, the same idea and something that can work really feasibly for a lot of folks that I think helps lend itself to more people adopting this is we buy the Omrons, we have the, or the 907 Excel, or we get the MicroLife Watch PP office or the the Walsh Allen, any of these ones that can do the average of three automated readings. And they can be observed. Sprint demonstrated that these don't have to be unobserved readings. And so what I do is I talk to my patient for five minutes while they're sitting there calmly and quietly in the room with me without them without having a news on in the background, without other things going on, I can control the environment. I can make sure it's quiet while I check their blood pressure and I type in my orders or I type in what they just told me. So I just gave them eye contact while I was talking to them, write my note while I'm sitting here watching them get their average of three readings, put in whatever their lab orders and medication orders are, and then finish their visit after we've got the three blood pressure checks. And that's been working out wonderfully in my clinic. And we've been really pushing hard with our hypertension disease teams in our hospital system to try to get folks to adopt this more, especially if someone comes in with their initial screening blood pressure elevated. If their initial blood pressure is normal, it's still probably shot in the dark, but <laughs> it's a little better than nothing. And, and if I could add a little bit, I have to add something to everyone, is that the one of the reasons that we are talking about standardized office BP and not ABPM in terms of target is that the standardized office BP actually gives you a number which sometimes may be lower. Now you think about office BP as being higher, than ABPM often, but it's not, there is again a noise, it could be higher or lower, but the standardized office BP gives you a number that's often way lower than your, what they call routine here, or what we used to call as casual BP. So it's lower, but it's often even lower than your daytime ABPM. So that makes it harder to give you some ABPM targets. And and if you look at the AHA guidelines, they use, let's say ABPM is five millimeters lower than office idea of comparison, but you really can't say that as we have seen someone could have white coat or they could have masked. But in this case, the standardized office BP actually gives you a way lower, on the average, a way lower number uh, and a more precise number. So uh, really, you should be using standardized office BP for everyone. Swap, you are on the clock. 
What's your draft pick? The board's getting a little thin. Yes, I am. I'm not going to leave you much for you. I know you are an ace inhibitor choice. So I'm not a transplanter, but I'm going to choose the transplant guidelines for a change. And, and it's interesting because... so I'll, I'll read out Which the, one are you picking? Which one are you picking? I'll pick one. The, the second one sort of rolls into one. So I'm choosing the lowest grade guideline. I'm choosing a practice point, not even a 2D. It's like a 2 E or 2F or something, I guess. I was wondering who would be the first person to pull a practice point. I never thought it would be Swap. I never thought he would go, okay, Swap, let's hear it. So the practice point 4.1 is treat adult kidney recipients with high BP to a target of less than 130 systolic and less than 80 diastolic using standardized office BP measurement, a C recommendation 1.1. So notice how it refers to my draft pick, which was number five somehow. Exactly. Which we now call the Tom Brady. It refers to the Tom Tom Brady Brady. pick. (laughs) 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 And and Nayan chose the guideline because he doesn't do what it says he should be doing. 130 over 80, which is different than than Josh's choice of less than 120 for everyone. So that, why did transplant people choose that? And it's, the thinking is interesting. I don't like it. I don't agree with them. I, I can't keep agreeing for the whole podcast. But the thinking is interesting and they lay it out very well. This is the KDGO guideline, so the kidney disease guideline, but the 120 does not come for kidney prevention. It comes for cardiovascular prevention. So in fact, we discussed that maybe incident CKD, uh, probably hemodynamic is higher. So we choose a lower blood pressure target in all CKD of 120 for cardiovascular prevention. And this is where things are different. In transplant, they say, oh, we worry about cardiovascular, but we worry about the kidneys even more. Uh, So they refer to these songs, standardized outcome. So there is a song group which talks about patient needs and patient preferences. And they looked at transplant patients and it looked like graft outcome is way more important it's very precious in transplant recipients, right? They worry less about dying, but kidney function is really important. And, and, and if there is a suspicion that with lower blood pressure, kidney function is going to be uh, affected, then let's not go down to 120, let's choose 130. And again, it's a practice point because there are zero transplant uh, blood pressure target trials. So they had to pick something out of the air and they say, ah, we don't like 120, it's too low. So let's just go to 130 over 80. Having said that, I know Joshua is, is trying to say something, but let me finish my uh, thought is that the way I, the reason I disagree is that if you look at transplant patients, what do they die of? Uh, they don't die of graft failure these days. They die with a functioning uh, graft. So they die of cardiovascular reasons. So your patients are dying, transplant recipients are dying of a functioning uh, graft. So cardiovascular prevention Despite whatever their preferences are, it should be the priority. So I think it's a wrongly chosen 130 or 80 target. Yeah, I was going to shoot the same dagger into the heart that Swap was shooting there too. I think this is like renalism in transplant world transferred over, right? When you ask transplant docs what matters more, cardiovascular outcomes or renal outcomes of the transplanted kidney, you're not. it's not the same answers you get from the patient who's like, would you rather live and go back on dialysis and maybe go for another transplant someday or have your or just die. And so I think like the cardiovascular outcomes are a really important one. And it would be really nice to have randomized blood pressure trials in transplant patients, which we don't have to this point. But I think in the absence of evidence, is 130 a crazy goal? No. Do we think that 120 would also be a crazy goal? I don't think that would be a crazy goal either, given that, again, everyone else seems to benefit from this 120 goal. Why do we think people with a transplanted kidney are so different? For a number of reasons, right? 
because when their creatinine bumps up, we don't know what's going on. We worry about a lot of pretty consequential consequences and they get biopsies, right? We do treat these patients differently. And I think that even though more of them die of cardiovascular disease, I don't think you can sleep on the fact that what do the patients care about? Most of them have experienced dialysis and the most important thing for them is to avoid dialysis. I don't think that's something that's irrelevant. I think the patient's I, concerned about I don't about think it's what's... irrelevant, but I think cardiovascular death, cardiovascular death is still a really hard outcome. And it's hard to overlook. But you need the study to you, show. You need the study, is... but it's hard to say yeah. that transplant nephrologists don't have a competitive interest saying we want to keep that transplant alive to the end of the patient's life. No, but where does the 130 come from? There's no trial for 130. Why did they choose 130? Right. It's just it's a number. Them. It exactly. sounds like a, a reasonable number. number. It's the same number from the ACC AHA guidelines that has no data to behind it either. It sounds like a reasonable number, but also 120 is a reasonable number for every other human being that this guideline covers. Why isn't that okay for transplant patients? <laughs> it's, 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 it's a guideline for every other person that's covered, but it was only tested in a select population of people that were over age of 55 who had cardiovascular if, risk if factors. If we're extending it to all CKD patients, then why don't we extend it to all CKD patients plus transplant patients who also had CKD before they got a transplant? Exactly. And there's always going to be shared decision making, right? So you say, hey, for a certain patient, don't go to 120. Uh, talk with your patient about this. Why, why choose even 130? So, Swap, I just need to understand. You drafted this, but you don't agree with this? I'm saying it's something that needs to be discussed. And it's, it, yeah, maybe I didn't get the concept. You drafted it because you wanted to talk about it. You wanted to, you were like, I'm not going, we're not exactly, heading this podcast exactly. without you getting your point in. Uh, is there anything else anybody wants to talk about transplant? I think Swap did a nice job. It is an interesting guideline. It's appropriately listed as a practice point. They're not, they didn't lay down. They said that we have evidence. They said that we don't have evidence. So this is our recommendation. We have reason because of patient preference that we're going to go softer on the blood pressure goal. And it's consistent with what all the transplant doctors want to do. None of them want to push their blood pressures down. And they, and we do think that these kidneys are more susceptible. We have signaled that these low blood pressures have hemodynamic effects on these, on normal kidneys and these kidneys because they're denervated and they're under the influence of calcineurin inhibitors are probably more susceptible to those concerns. It sounds reasonable to me. I actually thought the second part of that, the transplant part was more interesting to me. The first part, less than 130 was, it's a number, it's a reasonable number they're pulling at, it's a practice point, but the calcium channel blocker angiotensin receptor blockers first line was more interesting. I didn't know that there's some evidence to so ARBs are better than ACE inhibitors in this population. Yes, that's BS. So you can look at that. I tried to bring that up in the chat and I no one was interested. So I kept quiet. So if you look at that, if you look at the supplements, you have to go to page 196 of 352 or something like that. That was That's 192 pages further than I got in the supplement. I'll, I'll admit. <laughs> it's 196 pages further than Joel got. So don't worry, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> there so, was a so supplement? The, the, the ARB superiority is in graft loss, uh, and it's like a RR of 0.36 with confidence intervals that are on this side of one. But if you look at ACE inhibitors, it's 0.71 RR again, and the confidence interval, the upper one is 1.02. So it just crosses one. So they say, oh, ACE inhibitors don't work for graft outcomes, ARBs work. And if you look at cardiovascular outcomes, ACE inhibitors are significant. Again, and ARBs are not, but they're saying, oh, ACE inhibitors, no, ARBs really. Well, they care about their Do graph, I believe but... ACE and ARB are different, really, scientifically? What about this whole issue with angiotensin type 2, you know, receptor antibodies associated with graft right, loss? Right, exactly. There's... So that's the theoretical aspect that people brought up when I was criticizing this. But I'm not sure the data is, the evidence is that strong.
I think they're making a mistake of uh, dichotomania. Yeah. And then I get the preference for the ARBs here. I feel like I've seen a lot of shying away from diuretics in transplant patients just because folks are worried about the hemodynamic shifts. At the same time, like diuretics are a reasonable first-line blood pressure medicine in most human beings. And in the Channel Enthusiasm podcast, we talked about the role that thiazides can have in CNI-induced hyperkalemia because it still has that effect through the sodium chloride co-transporter. And, and so it, it may not be crazy to use thiazide-type diuretics or other diuretics in transplant patients. I think we do it fairly often. And so seeing those relegated to like second-tier blood pressure medicine status in transplant recipients is a little weird. And it just feels like a lot of the evidence or a lot of the guidelines that we have here for transplant recipients are mostly like hand wavy recommendations. And it'd be really nice to have data here. It'd be okay to have a black box of we don't know what to do with transplant patients. We really need more studies here. And that could be a totally fine chapter four. But it feels like a lot of this is recommendation without a lot of solid backing. But that might be timing, too. I, I, well, represented by the fact that it's a practice point, which isn't even graded, and then the other one is a 1C. Like, yeah, so the, the CCB yeah, the CCB is a 1C, and there are trials. For CCB, there's a systematic review. The CCBs are associated with or, or did cause a lower graph failure. That was versus placebo, though, wasn't it? Those versus trials. placebo, yeah, exactly. So. Not versus placebo trials. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and again, it, it's the preference, right? Because they think it's CNI, calcium, then calcium channel blockers are the drug of choice. You're absolutely right. Chlorthalidone. There's a trial of amlodipine versus chlorthalidone in AGKD in kidney transplant recipients, which showed that chlorthalidone works beautifully. In fact, the blood pressure lowering perhaps was a little bit more. But it's a BP as an outcome, not graft failure or graft outcome. So those trials haven't been done. And when I brought this up, my transplant colleagues were like, really? Like they were looking at me strangely, saying, you want me to use the chlorthalidone uh, post-transplant? They are all worried about creatinine going up and, and electrolyte CCBs. They are so benign. They are so safe and, and they don't cause any, apart from the ankle edema, they don't cause other badness relatively. See, I feel like I use chlorothaladone all the time. I love it in this because it lowers blood pressure. It takes care of the maybe hyperkalemia they get from the CNIs. I just use it later. I, usually we avoid it in the first few months. Later. Right. Once the surgeon stops following the patients, then you're free to use it. I will never get comfortable with the amount of beta blockade I see in transplant patients as like first line antihypertensive. It's to me that is just the most uncomfortable thing, especially knowing that we see in other populations that it's associated with a higher risk of adverse cardiac event. And I haven't seen not that. as bad as all the hydralazine we see. Anyway, slow down. What did you say about increased cardiovascular events with beta blockers? What's it? What for beta say? blockers in several populations, they've been associated with a higher risk of adverse cardiovascular events when used as first line antihypertensives and. So they're fine as second and third line, and they're very appropriate in people who have a specific indication to be on them, like someone who's had an MI or who's had heart failure already. But as in people for primary prevention, these should never be first-line agents, and they're just so commonly still used as first-line agents. And that's exactly right. So beta blockers and hydralazine being used when you should instead be using chlorthalidone. I feel like in general for a set of blood pressure guidelines, it doesn't shoot down beta blockers and hydralazine enough and prop yeah. up ACIN and ARB and appropriately dosed diuretics and calcium channel blockers to first year status for almost everyone enough. And I think if there was like a critique I had about the usefulness of the guidelines, it's about what medicines should I use and what medicines should I not use. And that would be really nice to see. Okay, I'm going to close out the opening round of the, uh, the draft.
We have a second uh, round, right? That's like called there's... tomorrow. Oh. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll tease, we're going to tease them that there'll be a second round. There ain't going to be a second round, okay? But we're teasing. We're going to let the, re- the listeners think that they're in for a second round. There's no second round. Okay, my closing out the first round, I'm going with recommendation 2.2.1. We suggest that patients with high blood pressure and CKD be advised to undertake moderate intensity physical activity for a cumulative duration of at least 150 minutes per week or to a level compatible with their cardiovascular and physical tolerance. I make this recommendation to all my patients. I think this is the most important thing that patients can do that it doesn't matter what outcome you're looking at or what disease you are looking at. By the magic of reverse causality, patients that exercise more always do better. And I want my patients to take all their advantages. And I am a huge proponent. I call it the fountain of youth. The more you move, the more you move. And so I think this is, a, I like that this made it into the guidelines and I am putting that, putting that marker down. Swap, you seem to have some thoughts here. It's like you saw this in the diabetes guideline as well. I think they feel the need to put some of these guidelines, eat healthy, move more without any evidence being there, you know, without any help about implementation. If you look at the trials, and I remember looking at them way before. So the people in these trials, non-CKD mostly, is that they had an exercise, like a physiotherapist or somebody who worked with them. Are you doing that? If you're not doing that, you're telling them to move. Is is just, you could spend more time in saying, make sure you really take your blood pressure properly. He's just buying that's everyone. That's just use of your time. He's just buying everyone then, a Peloton. I think that's a wrong attitude. I agree. I think that we need to tell patients to exercise. And it has to be repetitive. It's not the first visit. It's not, oh, they're not going to be receptive to it. This is treating the entire patient. It's not just medicines. Come on. We've got to, that's why they're putting it in there because otherwise it's easy to forget that. It's important. Now, this is a little different. After I get off my Peloton, it's actually my my cheap Peloton. It's my Schwinn that's been outfitted. I get off and I'm like, man, I feel good. I look in the mirror and I'm like, ooh, I'm looking good. It takes one of those. I don't look any different. But so I'm just saying, I think that all of these things are important. We cannot ignore it. We cannot uh, take that away as something we should continue to emphasize to our patients. I, I agree with Sophia. I think like in the, given that we have a, a lack of compelling evidence here, we can still recommend there's probably not going to hurt people to exercise. It could potentially help them. And I, I will note for folks who cannot see the visual that I have, Swampville is making this anti-exercise statement in front of his stairmaster that's behind him. So I think it's there's if it's no good, dirty clothes hanging off of it. He's not. No, using he's it as a clothesline. He's clearly using it in the step in in between podcast recordings. So I, I think this is a reasonable recommendation. Again, is it the highest level of evidence? It's probably not. But is going to do moderate intensity exercise for 30 minutes a day, five days a week going to hurt someone? No, it, it should help them. Jordy, do you have any thoughts on exercise? I uh, as some, I have a, a small little bike under my desk. I think that every single patient with kidney disease should get one of those because I feel like a lot of them, they don't like moving. It's not part of their day-to-day life. Not everyone, but a lot of people. And just move. We, we do have evidence, again, not high-quality evidence, that the amount of time that you are sedentary is really what matters and that if you're spending your entire day on your butt, you're going to have higher risk of, of heart disease. You're going to have higher risk of hypertension. And so it can't hurt, as what everyone else has said, to just move in some way. Okay. And that closes out the first round of the draft. Tune in tomorrow 
for the second round of the draft. Uh, you just look for that in your podcast feed. It should, it'll show up there eventually. Are we ready for some tubular secretion? Swap, do you have some tubular secretion? Yeah, yeah. No, I was chatting uh, on the side with Nyan. I was just looking at Nyan's peloton behind him. Like everyone's showing off their equip, exercise equipment. Well, that's just the background that he loaded into it's, Zoom. It's that a virtual a background. Peloton. And then my watch just told me to stand up. So He's got the same Schwinn that Sophia's got. <laughs> Is that a dig on the Schwinn? No, it's just, it's not Peloton, but I do have a much larger TV in front of mine, so I can like just ditch my Peloton <laughs> app and watch whatever I want while I'm cycling along, so it's not bad. So, what do you got? So, what do you got? in terms of COVID, things are looking good in Canada. It's it's really, our case numbers in, our, in Ottawa itself are, are way down, uh, double digits uh, in the hospital also is very down, and, and you, Canada has surpassed U.S., in terms of uh, first dose vaccinations, though we are way behind in second dose vaccinations. So anyway, it's a feel good kind of thing that maybe the summer will be good. We'll finally uh, get COVID down. But at the same side, I I feel I've mixed feelings in the developed world. We are fortunate. If you look at vaccination numbers in Asia and Africa, they are abysmal. And many of the rest of the world is going to face COVID for 21, 22, maybe 23 Hopefully, at least not us. Yeah, sure. My tubular secretion is, I joked about this earlier in the podcast, that I brought out a D120, which is the largest amount, it's the largest uh, amount of numbers you can have on a dice where it'll actually land symmetrically and evenly and not be... It's a 120-sided die? It's a 120-sided die. Yes, it was actually the gift I gave my husband for his the first birthday he had while we were a couple. And this is one of like the nerdiest things I think you can possibly do. We use it for a lot of games like D and other really nerdy like board games that you need dice for because it can serve as a D20, like a 20-sided dice. It can serve as a D2. It can serve as a D6, several other multiples. And so it's incredibly nerdy, but also just very cool, the fact that it exists. So just wanted to share that. It's made by you can twenty. It's one die to rule them all. Exactly. <laughs> I literally have no idea what any of this means. <laughs> it's, no a, it's, a, it's just a really cool die. Dice. It's a really cool die. Dice. But the more the application of it. There there are games in which you perhaps may either roll a dice to tell you how smart your character is or, or how dexterous your character <laughs> is and, and this helps to Actually you know. those characteristics use three six sided dice. So you get a bell curve distribution. It's actually a very cool idea that the way that they they did uh, character traits like that. The 120, where the chance of getting a 1 and a 120 are equivalent, is more for a saving throw. <laughs> you just elevated your dork number to, like, as high as Jordy's. Yeah, that's on a, a bell curve also. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, you got a, you have a, uh, a tubular secretion. Sure. So, if, if folks are looking for an additional podcast recommendation after they're done listening to our draft picks, I am not a country music person at all. Like, it's not of interest to me. But I saw this as a recommendation from one of my science podcast, science Twitter people. Dolly Parton's America, the podcast, is outstanding. It's a series of nine episodes from Jad Abumrad, who runs the Radiolab podcast where he does an extended interview with Dolly Parton and digs into her story, her backstory and like how her music connects with a truly diverse set of American people. And it's just like mind blowing, like the connections between 
Dolly Parton's rural upbringings and his family's upbringings in the mountains of Lebanon. Like you would not think that those two groups of people could be more disparate, but her music speaks to people in a way that I did not understand and I'm really starting to appreciate. And the storytelling is just so beautiful. Highly recommend this nine episode podcast series, even if you don't really care about podcasts or even if you don't care about country music, the storytelling is just outstanding. Excellent. Hearty review of Dolly Parton. Okay, excellent. Sophia, what do you got? So I'm a big fan of things right now where I can totally shut my brain off and stop thinking. So my husband and I started watching this show on Netflix called Alone. Have any of you guys seen that before? Basically 10 people go out to the Arctic and they get dropped off and they get a very like minimal amount of things of survival gear and they're trying to survive for essentially 100 days. It's actually phenomenal just to watch these people and what they can do and these this set of skill sets that they have. One guy actually took down a muskox. It's definitely a really great thing to watch for me. That's all I have to say tonight. Ryan, what do you got? So I promise I'm going to diversify my tubular secretions in the future, but this is a good time to uh, again mention Let's Lime. It's another project that Joel and I are involved in. And the reason I want to talk about that is so this is a podcast slash webinar uh, that's also released on YouTube where uh, Justin Burke and Caitlin Flashart are the co-hosts and they sit down with eminent people uh, within medicine to learn and learn from their life stories. And this week uh, or this most recent episode, we have Dr. Jennifer Gunter, who may be the hottest thing in medicine right now between her new book and new podcast. And she's joining us for the the third installment of Let's Lime. It comes out every other month. You can subscribe to it on your standard podcast forums. And then also there's a YouTube channel. Yeah, she picked a big fight with uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and her goop hurt the jade egg. Watch out, Jen Gunter. Uh, my tubular secretion is on the uh, NEFJC Summer Book Club. This is uh, year six, seven, year seven of the Summer Book Club. We started in 2015 with the Tool Gawande's Being Mortal, which was outstanding. We did Vanessa Grubb's Hundreds of Interlaced Fingers. We did Andrew Bombeck's Doctor. Last year, we did Rana Audish's In Shock. And this year, we have Joshua D. Mesrick's when death becomes life notes from a transplant surgeon and this looks like a uh, a pretty interesting book i have not started reading it but i definitely plan to start reading it wall street journal says when death becomes life braids unflinching medical history with frank clinical memoir there are no demigods in the world of transplant just especially ambitious and unqueasy humans And nature said, a no-holds-barred narrative, a visceral tale of hearts and bones, surgical bravura, and the web of transplantation that binds people who might never meet. So we're going to be talking about this the first week in August. Please get the book and read it. It's a special NEFJC. It's a good way to slow down during the summer and take something a little bit longer than a single manuscript. It's one of my favorite NEFJC traditions. That might be shorter than these guidelines. And I wouldn't know about supplementary index. <laughs> In shock, it was, that was great. I thought she was. I thought she was. Yeah. Okay, guys. Thank you very much. Put something.